the rest of us I'm going to invite to turn in your copies of God's Word or perhaps on your phone to Hebrews chapter 10. As we conclude what's been kind of a mini-series on the church, I've entitled this sermon, Grace in Person. I hope to make clear what that means. The church is God's grace in person. It is, as one person has called it, Jesus with flesh on to us. Hebrews 10, we see this. Over the past number of weeks, we've been highlighting the centrality of the church. That the church is not some kind of aftermarket bolt-on attachment to the Christian life that we can really just kind of do ourselves, but really it's, it's God's plan for our being made like Jesus. It's God's plan for our neighborhood and for the nations to come to know who God is for our discipleship and, and for our continuing in the truth. The church is God's plan. We said in weeks past it's a kind of building. You, we, we've heard many times the church is not the building, right? It's not the physical building. But we see in the Scriptures, in, in, in Peter and in other places, that the church is a kind of building. It's a building that God is using uh, to, to put together individual believers as stones around the cornerstone of Jesus to create this, this, this temple where we get to worship God as we gather around the cornerstone of Jesus. We unify around truth. There is no unity outside of true doctrine, what the Scriptures teach. That is our source of, of unity. The, the things that the Scriptures say are true of God and, and are true of us. That's how we maintain our unity. And then last week, we talked about how the church marches forth bearing these three pictures of the gospel, at least these three. There are other pictures of the gospel that we didn't mention, like marriage is a picture of the gospel in Ephesians chapter 5. But the church has church membership. The membership of the church is to be, as best we can get, a picture here on earth of what one day will be true in heaven. We learned about the picture of baptism, how it's a very clear representation of what has happened in those of us who have been saved. We have, been, uh, we have died to our old self. We've been buried in the grave, washed clean by the blood of Jesus, and raised to walk in newness of life. It's a picture of the gospel. And then last week, of course, we shared together this meal, the Lord's Supper, which is again a picture of of the gospel as we gather around the table to, to remember the, the body of Jesus and the, and the blood of Jesus broken and spilled for us. But today we look at a final passage. Of course, we could go on for, for uh, weeks and weeks, but have to, have to land the plane somewhere. And we're going to land the plane in Hebrews chapter 10. One of the things that we need to see in Hebrews chapter 10 is the argument that is built how the writer of Hebrews just builds on these different little truths and then brings forth this, this picture of what the church is supposed to be. We know that the church will never be perfect because the church is made up of a bunch of people like me and you who are ourselves not perfect. But yet in our imperfection, we get to, we get to see God's grace made manifest in our lives, the forgiveness of Jesus and the, and the sanctification becoming more like Him. So if you would join me in, in Hebrews chapter 10, here's what I'm going to do. Our passage begins in verse 19. But before that, we need to hit a couple of other things in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 1, 
verse 11 and verse 14. So I'll do those in turn. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Look what he says when he says these sense and sense and therefore statements. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the things to come, instead of the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. What is the purpose of the law? We remember, those of you who gather on Sunday nights as we go through Old Testament, the Old Testament is just full of these pictures, these shadows, that we get to see what they mean in the New Testament, right? The Old Testament, the the new is is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed, as as many have, have said. What we see in the, in the law is this, there's this temple practice. And every year the high priest has to go into the Holy of Holies. And he has to make atonement for the sins of the people. But the problem is he has to do it every year. He even has to make atonement for his own sins. He has to go and, and even daily kill these lambs. So, because blood is needed to take away the, the sins of the people. And why is this not enough? It's shown to us in the fact that his job never ends. The priest stands daily at his service. He's all the time having to, to make these, these sacrifices because it never really takes away our sins. What is that a shadow of? What is that a picture of? It's a picture of what we need in Jesus. That he by one sacrifice, by his own blood, one time shed on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God. Because why? The work is finished. But the law is just a shadow of these things. It can never take away the sins of those who draw near. And then look at verse 11, chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service. Why does he stand? Because his work is never done. Why does he do it daily? Because his work is never done. He offers repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? Did he stand? No. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So based on all this, now go down to verse 19, right? Go down to verse 19 and look what it begins with. It begins with this word, therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what is it therefore? Everything that has come before this word is the case that the writer of Hebrews has been building since we have a great high priest, since he is perfect, since he is spotless, since he has never sinned, and since... He has made one sacrifice by his own sins. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, then let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us, here's another let us phrase, let us hold fast to our confession, the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then let us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Would you pray with me? Father, as we consider your word, we know that we, 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 it perhaps will be appropriate for us to take off our shoes and approach you in a posture of humility because we are now standing on holy ground. Your word, when we read it, it is as if you were speaking to us today. And so God, I pray that we would not close our ears. I pray that we would not harden our hearts, but I pray that we would receive the things that you have to say for us today. Lord, you know all of my weaknesses. I have limitations of speech and of knowledge and and of articulation. But God, I, I pray that when I'm tempted to say something the wrong way, that you would just strike those words from my mind and you would help me to say exactly what you would have me to say as I seek to expose what is in the text today. Lord, we know that every work that you do, you do by your word. I pray that your word today would come alive to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You see what the writer of Hebrews has done here in in verse 19? Therefore, brothers, he has said, he spent the whole first half of the chapter building a case to then make a point. You could even argue that he spent everything in the book of Hebrews up to this point making this case where he says in in chapter 9, we have redemption through his blood. Only through the blood of Jesus have we been made right. In chapter 8, Jesus is the true and better high priest. The old high priests aren't good enough because they have to keep doing their sacrifices all the time. They can never fully finish their work. But Jesus, when he came and lived the perfect life that we failed to live and died the death that we deserve to die on the cross, he, as the true and better high priest, the go-between between sinful me and holy God, he was a true and better high priest. He did it perfectly. He's a priest of a better covenant in chapter 8. What kind of priest he is in in chapters 5 and chapter 7 of Hebrews before this. What kind of priest? Well, he's a perfect priest. At every moment when, when Jesus was faced with a decision, he obeyed perfectly because he is fully God and fully man. And then chapters 3 and 4 talk about the great rest that Christ brings. We've been talking on Sunday nights about the the Ten Commandments when we went through through Exodus chapter 20 and how in the Old Testament they had a Sabbath. In the New Testament we have a Lord's Day. We no longer Sabbath on Saturday. We meet together as the church on the Lord's Day. Why? Because the rest that we need is no longer contained in a day. The rest that we need has been accomplished by Jesus. We get to rest from our works because Jesus did it all. He provides a true and better rest. And then in chapters 1 and 2, it talks about how Jesus is supreme. He's above all. And because of that, he's able to be our Savior. Where, where we failed, where Adam failed, the second Adam, Jesus, succeeded. And because of that, we can have this word that he says in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Have you ever driven a vehicle that you didn't have confidence in? You didn't have the confidence that it had what it takes to get you from where you are to where you were going, right? I've had that experience before, I'm sad to say. Um, 
I had a friend one time ask me, he had to make a, an eight-hour trip, and he had this old, he was, we were college students, we were broke, and he had this old Toyota Camry, which, you know, Toyota's pretty good vehicles, but, and he said, I've been having some trouble with it, I've got to go from here to, I've got to go from South Carolina to Louisville, and he said, Greg, would you do it? And I said, not on your life, <laughs> because I've ridden in that car with you, and I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. I didn't have confidence that it had what it takes to take me from where we were to where we needed to be. Friends, what confidence do you have that you will be accepted by God one day? What, conf what is the basis of your confidence? And friends, I would say to you something. I'm going to try to say it gently. This is the challenge of preaching and of being a pastor. Sometimes you have to say very difficult things in a gentle way. If the first thing that came to your mind when I asked you the question, what is the basis of your confidence? Why would you have confidence that Jesus would receive you? If the first thing that came to your mind was something that you have done or something that you are, friends, you are in danger of going toward God outside of Christ. You are still in your sins, and today you need to come to him, and you need to turn from your works, and you need to rest in Jesus because the finished work of Jesus is the only thing that will make you acceptable in God's presence. Turn away from your works today. I beg of you, would you turn away from them? But we, we have confidence, not in the fact that we are good people, because friends, we are not. You can't read the Bible and come away thinking that we're okay in ourselves. We are not good people. Our confidence is not based on the fact that we are church members. Our confidence is not based on the fact that we have gone through the proper rituals. We have confidence instead because Jesus was sinless on our behalf and did the work for us. We have no good works. He has them all. The only question is, are we still in our filthy rags? Are we still in our bad works? Or have you been made to be under the umbrella of the works of Jesus. That is the basis of our confidence. We had nothing but an imperfect record but Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9 says this. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of his creation, look what it says in verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, right? The high priest goes in there every year. Jesus entered once for all, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Jesus, by his own blood, has done everything necessary for us. He goes on, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes, if these things sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, he will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Friends, run away from your works and embrace the finished work of Jesus. His blood was better. 
Friends, we ought to know this. We ought to know that we need a true and better blood. We ought to know that we need perfect blood. If we've, if we've ever read the, the Old Testament, remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, what did God have to do to properly clothe them? They put on the, the leaves, right? But God said that covering is not good enough. And he gave them the skins of an animal. What had to happen to get those skins? Something had to die. Blood had to be shed. When Abraham and Isaac went up on the mountain and there needed to be a substitute, they found a ram caught in the thicket. What had to happen for Isaac to go free? Blood had to be shed. Friends, what has to happen for you and I to go free? Blood has to be shed. We see this also in, in, the, temple, in the temple system of the Old Testament. Every day they kill these lambs. They, they continue these sacrifices. Blood has to be shed. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The problem is, the animals in the Garden of Eden and the lamb, the ram caught in the thicket and the temple sacrifices and our good works are all impure. They are not good enough. But Jesus was pure. Jesus was good enough on our behalf. His blood was better because he was perfect. At every point, Hebrews 5.8 says, he was obedient to the Father at every turn where we failed. And because of this, what does it say in verse 22? Just need to read verses 19 through 22. We can draw near. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus and by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, here comes the, the, the let us phrase, let us draw near. In other words, when you were outside of Christ, when you were his enemy, perhaps you still are this morning, when you were his enemy, he seemed frightening to you. And that is exactly how he should feel. But when you are in Christ and when he has sprinkled you with his blood and God looks down and sees no longer your sins and your works and your filthy rags, but he instead sees the finished work of Jesus, there is no need for fear anymore because you have been invited into his family. You've been adopted into it. You've been given a place at his table. He has accepted you not because you were good, but because his son was good for you. There is no need anymore, Romans 8.1 says, for condemnation. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. The Bible says, perfect love cast out fear. If you are today in a relationship with God and that relationship is a relationship of fear, then perhaps you need to come to him today so that you can be made right and can experience this peace and can experience this freedom from condemnation that is no longer necessary because of what Jesus did for you. Let us draw near. You can draw near today. Jesus invites you to draw near through his blood. Here's the second let us phrase. You see, there's kind of three, let us pray. Therefore, based on everything that has come before, therefore, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Verse 23 says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In other words, 
This gospel that you've received, this gospel that has changed you, you better watch out because the sands of the culture are going to, like a, like a piece of sandpaper, they're going to be an abrasive against you. They're going to try to wear you down. They're going to try to get you to let go of the more controversial parts of the gospel that saved you. But don't do it. Don't ever back down. Don't let go of the confession of our hope. He says, hold fast to it. It's like a, a man, it's a, it's a picture that I get in my mind is like you're, you're going through these storm-tossed seas and you're just holding fast to this pole on the boat. Hold fast to the confession. Why? Because it is what saved you and only an, a pure gospel is what can save our neighbors and those to the nations. We have found this truth, the truth that saves and we must hold on to it, come what may. Friends, this is going to be one of the greatest challenges of the next generation. Believing the things that we believe will increasingly be considered by the culture as not only uncool, and some of us tapped out when it got uncool, right? Believing the things that we believe will increasingly make us the bad guys. We will increasingly be seen as not just those who are uncool, but, for the, but, but as those who believe things that are harmful. There is such a trial that is coming. There is such a falling away that will come that I'm afraid if we don't now get serious about making disciples, about living out of the gospel, about putting our money where our mouth is, friends, I'm afraid that we will not stand. God will always preserve His church, but He does it through means. And the means right now, I believe, are setting the bones straight and, we and strengthening the weak joints because there is a storm coming in our culture. Are you ready? Are you prepared for that? Is Christ valuable enough to you to endure the ridicule and the shame and the ostracism and perhaps even the loss of job that will come? 2 Timothy chapter 4 says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Listen to this. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. Not only has the consumer culture taken its toll on the church, I'll be involved in church so long as it pleases me. You know, I'll, I'll invest into the gospel ministry so long as I happen to have some extra money left over at the end of the month. I'll, I'll go to a church that fits all of my preferences. Not only has the consumer culture done its erosive work on the church, not only has this kind of culture that has gone away from a deep understanding of the Bible and it's gone more to these little five steps to a happy life, positive and encouraging, 
expectation toward God. Not only has theological liberalism, which we talked about on Wednesday night, if you missed that, go back and listen to the podcast or the video. Not only has theological liberalism taken the emphasis off of what God has said and placed it on what we experience, not only has all of these things happened, but the culture is shifting beneath our feet. And if we do not now batten down the hatches and believe and understand why we believe what we believe, I'm afraid that we will not be prepared to meet that trial. We must hold fast to our confession. How do we do this? Sounds like a bleak word, but there's good news. The good news is that God has given us a means to do this. And that means is the local church. That means is one another. It's not additional. It's not ancillary. It's not a bolt-on aftermarket little feature. It is actually God's plan A. And look how he, how he says this to us in verse 24. In the last let us consider, phrase, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. In other words, what, what does love and good works include? It includes everything. It includes teaching the younger generations how to have a successful marriage and how to raise their kids in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. It means encouraging one another to be evangelists, to tell the gospel to our neighbors, neighbors, how to give and how to pray and how to go to the nation so that others may hear, how to encourage one another in the dark moments when when things don't go well or we experience loss and trial and all kinds of things like that, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, comma, not neglecting to meet together. In other words, how do you encourage one another? You encourage one another through the vehicle of the local church. Not neglecting to meet together, of course. The, the, the original hearers of this letter would have been gathered as a church when they heard this. And it says here, how do you encourage one another? you got to encourage one another by being up in one another's faces and in bumping up against one another to push one another toward Jesus, to hold one another accountable, to confess your sins to one another, and so be healed as the... As James tells us in chapter 5, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, comma, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When you gather, do, 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 you, do you frequently ask yourself, how might I encourage my fellow Christians? Is that a question that that comes up in your mind. I have folks who, uh, who I'll, I'll not mention their names, but frequently just send me a text message out of the blue. Frequently just give me a call out of the blue and just, just to encourage me. That is like, when they do that, I feel like I could just charge hell with a water pistol. It's like encouragement is this incredible tool given us by God. And if we don't use it, friends, we will be like stripped of our weapons against this battle that we're having to fight. And so I would encourage you, ask yourself, how can I encourage one another it, 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 to, to love Jesus and, uh, and to, uh, to, to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together. I do believe that that includes, that that involves the regular gathering of the church on the Lord's Day, which is the New Testament pattern, what we're doing right now. But I think it also means meeting together in one-on-one -on -one relationships. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians, though you have countless guides in Christ... In other words, though you have millions of devotional books and you have millions of podcast pastors, though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. 
Find yourself a father or a mother. Be a father or a mother, a spiritual father or mother to someone else. Get together in a one-on-one kind of relationship or a small group relationship. Who knows what the Lord might do here with a, with a small group ministry into the future of those who are gathering together to encourage one another in love and good deeds. And then he says this, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We can't leave off that last little clause, can we? Do this all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, we are tempted to believe that tomorrow is a given. We are tempted to believe that in three years we will still be here or that Jesus will not have returned by then. But we need to live among one another with an eye toward the final day, with an eye toward the fact that Jesus is going to return And the neighbors and the friends that we have that we love, we need to share the gospel with them. And friends, I would say to you today, if you are here gathered in this room or up in overflow or if if there's anyone watching at home, I would say to you, we don't know when that day is. And today is the day of salvation. If you have heard today the message of how your works are no good, my works are no good, only the works of Jesus are good, and you have never come to God on that basis, I'm going to ask you to respond to him today. I'm going to beg of you. Would you repent of your sins? Would you turn away from your old life and run to the rest of Jesus in his arms? He will accept you if you cry out to him today. I'm going to pray. And we'll finish our time this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that it gives us everything that we need. Lord, we need to be made more like you. I need to be made more like you. I pray that you would do that work. We know that the way you do your work is through the ministry of your word. I pray that you would change us. I pray that you would give us such a level of commitment to the church, which is not to just some institution here in our town, but is actually to one another. I pray that we would sacrificially pray, give, and go so that our neighbors and so that the nations may know and hear of the gospel that can save them. And I pray today, God, if there is anyone who has today heard the gospel in a way and you have opened the eyes of their hearts as they have sat in the pew, they would come forward and talk to me about what it means to be a Christian and to follow you for the rest of their lives. I pray these things. In the name of Jesus, amen.